welcome in to the Charlie Romer Balls in the Air podcast. I'm your neighborhood host, Charlie Reimer, mostly friendly. Yesterday I was very friendly here in Myrtle Beach. I rolled out the big green egg and uh, cooked up some brisket for some of my neighbors. And I got to admit, I had a little bit of it <clears throat> myself. Got a little pecan wood, a little mesquite. Man, I had this whole place smoking up. But um, there were a lot of smiles when that brisket came up off the grill last night. And uh, pretty darn good stuff right there. But anyway, let me get back to the subject in hand. This, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> is British Open Week. That's right, I said British Open. <laughs> Some people yell at you for saying British Open. And uh, th this is a, a, a show for another day. But I always find it interesting, the um, different groups that are involved in uh, shaping the words that we use to describe golf. You, you have, uh, for example, the USGA and the RNA, uh, whose charge it is to protect the integrity of the game, administer the rules of golf, and they have a way that they want you to speak about golf. Uh, you have the broadcast partners um, who uh, have a vested interest in making sure that uh, their partners are happy with their broadcasts and the way that events are branded, which uh, events occasionally uh, get a little spin on the old branding. That certainly happened to the British Open, which went to the Open Championship and now is referred to as simply the Open. Um, sky, uh, style guides are published uh, for uh, folks that are, cover these events in the hopes that they'll choose to use the appropriate names and titles and phrases. I've got no problem with that. That's just the world we live in. And then finally, and this is where I'm the most concerned and and um, or put the most emphasis is on authentic golf. That's why I was originally hired to be a golf broadcaster, to bring you, the fan of golf, inside our great game. That involves using the terms that the folks that play golf every week use. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, it comes up quite frequently. Um, your uh, uh, parents at, at the uh, uh, muckety-mucks in the world of golf want Thursday and Friday when three – players are together, want that to be referred to as a grouping, uh, on the weekend, if you go to twosomes, which most of the time you do, then that becomes a pairing. Their argument is, well, you got to use proper English. Well, I can tell you from walking up and down the driving range, on uh, any given week on the PGA Tour, you can ask a player who you're paired with, and he'll tell you two other players. Doesn't make sense. It's not proper English, but it's authentic golf. And that's where I try to stay. I try to stick with authentic golf. So this week, British Open Week. I've always called it that, and I'm going to continue to call it that until um, I, I am told that I have to otherwise, and I don't anticipate that ever happening again. But anyway, let me talk a little bit about Lynx Golf and my love for Lynx Golf. I, I absolutely adore it. And um, I, I first went to uh, the U.K., uh, in Ireland back in uh, 1988, and, and it was uh, an amazing trip. I was, uh, oh, I was 20 years old, and, and about a year prior to the trip, maybe even a little farther than a year out, my uh, late grandmother, uh, she, she uh, got my dad and I together, and I was raised by my mom and stepfather. I didn't know my biological father very well up until about this time. We started playing a little golf together, and and we always got along great. It's no sad story or anything. It was just one of those things that happened. We ended up having a great relationship. But she wanted us to get a little bit closer. And she, she told my dad and I, she said, um, you guys plan a dream trip 
to go play golf in Scotland and Ireland. She said, I want to fund it. I just want you guys to spend time together. It's something that you've bonded over. Neither one of you have been over there. I'd like you to go do it together. She said, take three weeks. Have a just a trip of a lifetime. And so we recruited a, a cousin and uh, his wife. And so the four of us put this trip together. <clears throat> and I was charged with doing the planning. And I used a company that's still around today. Now, remember, this is back in 1988. Company's called Perry Golf. They do a wonderful job. Gordon Dogleash is the founder and president. Um, his brother, Colin Dogleash, uh, both of them, uh, they're obviously Scottish. Colin's a heck of a player. Not that Gordon is bad, but Colin was actually a British amateur champion back in the day. So, a really good player. And um, they put this trip together. <clears throat> in the meantime, I wrote the RNA because I had heard that if you were a player from outside the UK and you had a strong competitive record that you could get an exemption from the first round of qualifying and go to what at the time, I believe it was called on-site qualifying. And they typically used four golf courses in the area, you know, within a couple of hours of wherever the venue was. And it would be Sunday, Monday, you play 36 holes. And there was normally about 50 spots total that were available, so 10 to 13 or 14 spots at each golf course. <clears throat> well, I wrote to get an exemption for the first qualifier, and shockingly, the RNA granted my exemption. So I set up the whole trip <clears throat> around the on-site qualifying for the 1988 <clears throat> British Open. We'd take off on our trip. We uh, went to Ireland. That was the first golf I ever played in that part of the world, and... and uh, um, enthralled with Ireland. We spent a week there. We went to Scotland. We played all the great courses. Um, <clears throat> an amazing trip. We had a great time. The four of us got along super well. The, the weather was horrible everywhere we went. I wear size 15 shoes. I wore two pairs of shoes out. I couldn't hardly really find any shoes <laughs> to play in. I think I ended up playing in tennis shoes. My uh, rain suits weren't as good as they were, but I just, I loved every minute of it. I can remember playing La Hinch and watching my dad take an umbrella out on the first tee and the umbrella just went poof, you know, there it goes. And and um, I'm like, Dad, you can't use an umbrella in conditions like this. But um, the old course, we, we uh, Carnoustie, Turnberry, Troon, um, Valley Bunyan, old. We, we, uh, we had a chance to, to play them all uh, in Ireland and Scotland. And uh, I played horrible, horrible golf the entire time. <clears throat> Barely broke 80. Never seen anything like it, but I loved it. And um, so the end of the trip, we ended up uh, uh, near Blackpool um, and uh, had a hotel there and and went and played a practice round at a little golf course called Lytham Green Drive on a Saturday. And I started hitting it pretty pretty well during a little practice round. And my dad was out watching me play. And, and uh, uh, something happened on Sunday, the first round of, of the on-site qualifying. I got paired with Eduardo Romero of Cordoba, Argentina. Uh, who, who, a heck of a player later on, ended up being the U.S. Uh, Senior Open champion. And and um, I went out, and, and I don't know what happened, but um, I shot the course record on Sunday. I shot 64. It was just crazy. And, and again, I coming in, I hadn't broken 80. I got shoes that I can't keep on my feet. Um, it, it was – you talk about coming out of nowhere. So the second round, Eduardo basically held my hand. He knew I was – you know, scared to death. Here I am. I'm between my junior and senior year at, at Georgia Tech, and and I go out. I think I shot maybe one under the second round. I didn't really need to do much. I just needed to not have a disaster and and maybe finish sixth or seventh and got a spot. And they handed me my ticket, and uh, 
Monday night, I'm uh, the only amateur from the U.S. in the uh, British Open at Royal Little and St. Anne's. And um, the, the club there threw a nice party for me. The captain of the club gave me a plaque for shooting the course record. Ended up staying at one of the members' houses that week. Uh, talk, talk about just an incredible uh, experience. And, and the family that we stayed with... Um, uh, it, it was like Goldfinger from the James Bond movies, and and uh, just <laughs> just uh, the uh, uh, yellow Rolls Royce out in the front. God wore would wear uh, yellow patent leather shoes. It was it was really crazy, but uh, they had enough room for all four of us, which which was really cool. Um, so I ended up playing a practice round that week with um, with Larry Mize, uh, who I found on Tuesday. He's one of the few players I knew. I knew Larry Mize and I knew Jack Nicholas, and I knew that I shouldn't be bugging Jack Nicholas about playing a practice round. I, I did say hello to him. He said, what in the world are you doing here? And I told him I got a spot, and he got a chuckle out of that. But um, Larry said, uh, he said, let's play a practice round on Wednesday. And he wrote us down in the, um, uh, in the, in the T sheet there to play with uh, Hubert Green, the late Hubert Green and Fuzzy Zeller. And, and, uh, Talk about having just a time of my life playing with those two. It, it was so much fun. And and um, when the tournament started on Thursday, um, I had this super late tee time. I was playing with uh, Brad Faxon um, and another professional, uh, an Englishman, uh, sort of like me, not much of a career note, uh, but but a nice guy. And uh, the tee time was almost like 4 o'clock local time. And... and uh, you can imagine, here I am, 20 years old, an amateur, playing in the largest golf tournament in the world, and I got a 4 p.m. tee time. Sleep did not come easily. And uh, finally get to the golf course, and the first hole Royal Lytham is famously a par three. I was scared to death. Somehow I hit a six iron uh, right in the middle of the green. The whole location, as I recall, was back right, and I had about 18 or 20 feet for birdie. And um, big crowds around, they grandstands around a lot of the greens there. And uh, actually a former teammate of mine, Nacho Gervas, who played at Georgia Tech, was a great player, made it to the European Tour, uh, Spaniard. He was caddying for me, and he was trying to calm me down. He couldn't really do that. But So I got this 18-footer for birdie, first hole in British Open. At this time, I'd never even played in a regular PGA Tour event. And um, I left it dead in the throat, about five feet short. And now <laughs> I got this five-footer for par. Inside left, put a little speed on it. I left that dead in the throat, about 10 inches short of the hole. I mean, dead center, 10 inches short. And then I go up, and now I got a 10-incher for bogey, and I hit as hard as I could, and it got to the front of the hole, stopped, and then somehow fell in for bogey. And and that ended up being uh, sort of the story of the day, just really nervous and uncomfortable. The winds were over 40 miles an hour that day. I'd never seen anything like that Um Rough was really high, shot 83, uh, but yeah, it was my score. I signed for it, earned my way there. Next day, um, played a little bit better. I shot 77. I really wanted to make sure I broke 80, and, and the finish there at Royal Lytham, St. Anne, 16, 17, 18 is really brutal, and I, I remember parring those last three holes uh, to, to shoot 77, so 83, 77 sounds horrible, I know, but consider this, ladies and gentlemen. Mark Kalkovecchia also shot... 160 at the 1988 British Open at Royal Little and St. Anne's. The next year at the British Open, 1989, Troon, he won it. So I've got that going for me. I know it's not much, but it's something, right? <laughs> but that that um, really, that three weeks started my love affair with Lynx Golf. 
it looks different. Folks have never been. Um, a lot of times on TV, it doesn't look good. It's dry, it's burnt out, the wind's blowing. It's hard to pick up all the features of the golf course on television, even as good as, as all our lenses are and the technology that we have. Uh, it, it, until you've played it and been on the ground and understand how they play the game there, uh, you, you know, it's a walking game, which is unbelievably the best way to play this game. Um, you keep the ball in front of you. Uh, a lot of times, <clears throat> if you're playing a golf course that has high rough, and a lot of them do, uh, I, and I'm not the straightest in the world, the, the way I find my golf ball is is um, I pretty good idea most of the time within about 15 yards how long my driver goes. And if it's in the rough, I'll go, all right, that's just a little left of that church steeple off in the distance. I'll count my steps. You know, into the wind, go about 270, start looking, uh, and sure enough, you can find the golf ball. Down the wind, I'll, downwind, I'll go about 300. Uh, on the line that the ball was on and start looking sure enough you'll find your ball it's the kind of golf that you you really don't need a laser honestly you don't even need yardages that much um if the especially if the wind's up if the wind's not up and the course you've gotten a little soft you need some yardages but it's it's all about feel it's all about trying to figure out uh from 150 yards how to hit a five iron and run it in low and and um um the 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 way the wind works there is typically doesn't shift during the course of a day or if it does shift there's one shift and you, you might have six seven eight holes in a row that you're playing into a particular wind you turn around it goes the other way so you, you're always having to adjust par might say that it's a par four on the scorecard but if it's into the wind it's really a par five you got to make sure you don't get upset about that because hey you know you're going to have coming back the other way you're going to have a, a hole that's a par five on the card but because it's downwind it's really a four so par becomes irrelevant. It just it becomes about you know hitting the shot that's right in front of you. You got to use your creativity, which I know is is difficult for some people to pick up because the golf courses look bland on TV. But believe me, they they are not bland, and and um, it, it's just a um, a refreshing way to play golf, and it's a, and it's a type of golf that that never ever ever gets boring. The uh, conditions are different. The sand is a little bit different in the bunkers. Uh, it, it tends to be a little more powdery. It sort of feels like marble dust. And those bunkers, a lot of times when you look at them, um, you know, they're, they're, they're small, they're round, and you think, well, that's not a very big bunker. But what happens is, is the way the, the fairway is prepared typically around the bunkers is they almost act like little black holes. And, you know, you give them about 15 yards of one of those bunkers, it'll sometimes spiral right down in and, and roll in one of those bunkers and and um, most of the time if you hit in a fairway bunker you're gonna have to get a really good break if you're gonna have a play at the green and in a lot of regards I, I think that's the way the the game should be but it, it it's um, takes a ton of patience you're 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 gonna have a lot of times if you got an early time you can have very different conditions and someone has a late time you just got to tell yourself you know if this week is gonna even out if it doesn't even out this week over the course of a career, it'll even out. You just you just have to stay positive. You have to stay upbeat. Uh, Tom Watson, uh, the the person who many argue is the, is the greatest links player of all time, he's the ultimate in that. Not getting emotional about watching where a golf ball goes. Staying patient. Staying in the present. Grinding it out. These are the elements that are required to play really good golf. In, in the Open Championship or Lynx Golf in general. And it's not for everybody. I understand that. But for me, it's something that I really appreciate and enjoy. Uh, I wish I had some insight for you on 
uh, Royal St. George's. I haven't been there. I've, obviously, I've read all the reports. You can go read all that if you're interested in it. Uh, some of the players get a little grumbly about Royal St. George's, and I believe that's because uh, the golf course has a lot of blind shots. A lot of players don't really care for blind shots. Um, you can make the argument they're spoiled. I'm not really going to go there, but um, it's uh, a lot of humps and bumps in the fairways. A lot of times you can hit a ball, you know, what you think is right in the middle of the fairway can take a, a bad hop and, and carry them off somewhere into a tough lie. And a lot of times the opposite is true. So the term uh, rubber the green applies more in, in the British Open, I think, maybe than, than uh, any other golf that we see. But um, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but... For those that appreciate it, it's uh, one of the two most fun weeks of the year to be a, a fan of golf. And uh, it certainly applies to me, especially having some great memories of, of playing in a British Open when I was 20 years old, way back in the last century in 1988. If you look at the list of favorites this week, I'll just finish there. Uh, John Rahm, uh, rightfully so, uh, is, uh, is at the uh, top of the list. And um, I think a lot of smart money is going there. John, obviously a very talented golfer um, in terms of uh, uh, looking at his record, everything he's done since he turned professional, now the U.S. Open champion. Uh, his confidence before winning the U.S. Open, uh, he was as confident a player as I've ever seen in my life. can't imagine how confident that he feels right now. But he's not my... Pick. When you look at the last five winners at Royal St. George's, you got Darren Clark, Ben Curtis, Greg Norman, Sandy Lyle, and Bill Rogers. And, and I want to point out Darren Clark winning very late in his career, a very accomplished player from European Tour, Ryder Cup hero, uh, done a lot of great things in the game, hadn't won a major championship. It, it came a little bit out of nowhere. It was a very popular win, a uh, very emotional win. Um, D Darren had uh, lost a, a wife to uh, cancer and, and very publicly went through that. And, and a lot of people really appreciate Darren for his personality and the way he plays the game. This British Open, I I'm going to stay on that sentimental page. A guy that I like is Lee Westwood uh, for, for a lot of the same reasons I just mentioned Darren Clark, just very well thought of, Ryder Cup hero, um, a lot of funds, paid his dues. And if you look in the last 18 months, he's really played some wonderful golf. And and so, you know, I might be, it's just, certainly it's a heart pick, but that's who I have my eye on this week um, is uh, is uh, Lee Westwood, especially in a year when you know, <laughs> Bill Mickelson wins at PGA. You got Stuart Sink winning at, uh, at Harbor Town uh, last week, Lu Lucas Glover after a long dry spell. In the year where old guys, well, they're all younger than me, but you know what I mean, are playing some great golf, why not? Why not have Lee Westwood win the last major of the season? I know that would be a very popular win. Well, everybody, enjoy the uh, British Open this week at Royal St. George's. Uh, I think it's going to be one, one heck of a week, as it always is. Uh, I can tell you that I'll be watching quite a bit. And um, appreciate you listening here to the Charlie Romer Balls in the Air podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast anywhere that you receive your podcast. And um, if you get a chance, like us. If you don't like us, then you're a rotten egg. I'm just going to end with that. <laughs> we'll be right here next week with a fresh episode of the Charlie Romer Balls in the Air podcast. Everybody have a great week. Enjoy the British Open. <laughs>